It is a joy to be able to open up the word of the Lord with you once again today, and we are going to be looking at 3 John. 3 John is our text this morning. We're going to be uh, looking verse 1 to 15 of this tiny little book, this book of 3 John. I'd like to ask that if you are able that you would stand out of reverence for God's word as it is read this morning. Third John, let us listen to John as he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church, You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you, the friends greet you, greet the friends, every one of them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, for your word, this day, once again, we give you thanks. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us. Thank you that we may know, thus saith the Lord. And Father, as we turn to this book this morning of 3 John, we pray, Lord, that you would take this letter and we pray that through your Holy Spirit that you would bring it to life to us and that you would change us, mold us, fashion us after the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, we pray that you would do this through your word for your spirit is able We are not able. And so, Father, we come humbly asking for eyes to see 
and ears to hear. Would you grant that to us this day? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Today we come to this last little letter entitled Third John. Uh, this is the smallest book in the entire Bible, but I can assure you what it lacks in length, it makes up for in potency. Like First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus Philemon, Third John is written to an individual. Those are the books in the New Testament that are written specifically entitled to a person. Indeed, it's an inspired letter ultimately given for the well-being of the church, right? For the church as a whole throughout uh, the centuries as God's word speaks to us. But its original context is a letter from one person to another person. The thing that makes this letter so interesting is it's a letter written from one elder to another person in the church describing to him how he's to deal with a particular problem, a particular person, as we will see. One commentator says about this book, and I quote, it is all very straightforward. A slice of a day in the life of two ministerial colleagues dealing with typical issues of their age. It's a picture for us. This is a glimpse into the life of the early church. And for those of us with a romantic view of the early church, thinking that everything was wonderful and fine and dandy, you read the New Testament and you find that eh, when you have sinners gathered together before Christ returns, it's just not so much. And so we're gonna see that as we look through this book this morning. Um, if the uh, ancient historian Eusebius is right, uh, he said that John wrote this letter after he had been released from incarceration on the island of Patmos. If he is right in stating that, then this would have been the, most likely the last book written in the New Testament for us this morning, written very, very late compared to the other, other books. Uh, just like First and Second John, this letter is concerned with speaking about the truth the truth about Jesus Christ and the proper love and fellowship that goes with those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. As we saw from this small book of 2 John before, the truth unites us together as a people. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings us together into a family. Correct doctrine leads to correct obedience and correct fellowship with one another. Those are the three, those are issues that we see here in 3 John. We see love, we see truth, we see unity, we, we see fellowship, we, so, we see obedience, a call to not be like someone who is disobedient. We're going to see that, uh, disobedient, we're going to see that in this letter. You see the men, it's a very particular letter, isn't it? As we read through it, and, and I've been stuttering through these names, I don't know uh, how to pronounce them, so don't take me on that, Gaius, 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 I'm, I'm not sure, I just say something, so I'll probably change those throughout the sermon, get it right at least once, maybe. Um, but there's four men spoken of here who make up the cast of the people of this letter. 
And uh, we're going to use these men and what John has to say about them to guide us uh, through this letter this morning. So five points for us to help us uh, structurally come through the text, five movements through this letter, hopefully that will encourage us to live in obedience, encourage us to live in obedience to Jesus Christ and to uh, have the fruit of that obedience in our congregation. So first we see here, very straightforwardly, we see John's greeting to Gaius. John's greeting to Gaius. In verse number one, it says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Once again, just like Second John, John is referring to himself here as the elder. It's none other than the apostle John, the beloved disciple of the Lord. He's one of those, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the sons of thunder of James and John, the son of Zebedee. He's the last living apostle, a leader in the church in Ephesus. As we're also going to see, that leadership extended beyond this one church into other churches in the area. And so we see John here writing, same one that wrote 1 John, 2 John, obviously 3 John, Revelation and the Gospel of John. You see who this letter is written to, to the beloved Gaius. Now we don't know much about Gaius. We do know that Gaius is a very common name, uh, not today, never heard that one, but in Greco-Roman society. Uh, that makes it a little bit different. In fact, it's kind of like John or James today. It's just a very common name that is used. It's used five times in the scripture, in Acts and Romans, 1 Corinthians. So we're not exactly sure who this is, but what we do know is this man is dearly loved by John. Most likely, he's a leader in a congregation of a church one that is a distance from where John is writing to. Obviously, he's writing him this letter. And so he loves Gaius. He is probably a leader there within the local congregation. We see John's concern for Gaius in verse number two, his concern for him. He says, and you see this repeated, right? Beloved, as he's writing to him. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. John, speaking with endearment here, prays that things might be going generally well with Gaius. He asks that he is in, in good health. And did you notice how John connects there in this verse physical health and spiritual health? He, he says to effect here, I pray you're doing as well physically as you are spiritually. Let's just pause for a moment and think about that. He says, I pray you're doing as well physically as you are spiritually. You see a preeminence, first and foremost, which one is of most importance? Let's be doing well spiritually, right? And he prays for that. Let's just think about that for a moment. What if somebody prayed for you like that? What if somebody prayed for you? I pray you're doing as well physically as you are spiritually, would that be a good prayer? Would that be more like a curse prayer? Would we fall over immediately and need to be taken to the ICU if that was indeed something that could happen to us? Paul instructs Timothy that bodily training is of value, but godliness is of more value. Eventually, we know our bodies will fail. 
For many, it's a very slow process. And for all of us, it will lead to physical death. But praise God, spiritually, our strength renews and grows each day and will take us home to be with Christ, right? So the picture we see in Scripture is growing spiritually even as our outward nature is wasting away. Those of us that are growing older are probably thinking, that is right, that is very true. I couldn't uh, help but think this week, even uh, on, on Thursday, I believe, as, as typing this up and uh, buzzing with my phone, one of our uh, beloved members, Anita Draper, I was texting uh, with her. She texted back about uh, uh, she had taken a, a fall this week and that she was bruised up from that and battered from that. And I just couldn't think uh, of her, of beloved saints in the church who are growing older but spiritually are growing in Christ and being able to see that take place. I praise God for that, how we grow in our spiritual nature more and more and more to reflect Christ. We see his concern for Gaius here. Secondly, we see a heartfelt joy, obviously, that he has for Gaius. See, I already said it twice, uh, uh, opposite ways. In the midst of this church conflict that we're going to see and troubles with rogue leaders here in the churches and false teachers, we can hear a heartfelt joy in the apostle's words. Look at what he says in verse number three. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you were walking in the truth. John and Gaius were not in the same church. They were living in separate places, but some brothers who had been traveling to the church that Gaius was in had brought back a really good report of how he was doing, of how Gaius was living in faithful obedience. As John says, they, quote, testified to your truth, meaning that Gaius was believing the truth. He was holding on to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And furthermore, as we know, a proper root always bears fruit. It says, testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. He was living in obedience. He was faithfully living his life as a believer. Things bring about his statement of joy in verse number four as we see. Look at number four, his, his joy come forth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Right, this is similar to what he's already spoken in the book of Second John uh, that he speaks of there of his joy of seeing them walking in the truth. That thing is something in his life that cannot be topped. He says, I have no greater joy Nothing could have made John happier, more joyful than to hear that Gaius, one of his brothers, was walking in the truth. In his old age, John knew what was most important in this life. And he knew that that was living in obedience to God's word and walking in the truth. I just asked for a moment here, what's the opposite of that news to come from another church, from another person, to say that uh, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Opposite, the opposite of that would be that they're not walking in the truth, 
right? And what would that bring? What sort of emotion would that bring? Obviously, that would bring great sorrow, wouldn't it? To hear that someone is not walking in the truth. Just think about that for a moment. Maybe uh, this isn't the church that you grew up in. In fact, we're not that old, so that really couldn't be the case, right? But so hopefully you have, you have another uh, church either, uh, whether that was from Leonardtown Baptist or somewhere else. As you think back to somebody at that church and you hear that they are doing well and that they're living in obedience to God, it's that same sort of motion that just gives you a great joy. Just think about those of you that have served and labored in teaching students in church and in teaching children and having a, an effect of other kids' lives and you see them grow up and you see them living in obedience to God, isn't there nothing greater than seeing that? To have no greater joy than to hear that these are walking in the truth. They're remaining faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What great joy that should bring of us to hear of God's work in others' lives. And before moving on, I think there's application for us here, isn't there, even for thinking about our physical children. John refers to, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That what, what he means by that is not his physical uh, offspring. He's talking about those in the church that he's referring to as, as a parental uh, type of relationship, his children. Maybe he had had uh, his fingers in sharing the gospel with them, but these are in the church. But even how much applicable is this to us in our own families, we could receive no greater news from our physical children than to hear that they are walking in the truth. There is nothing better for a Christian parent than to hear and know that their kids are walking in obedience to God. Sadly, some Christians, with some Christians, you wouldn't know that to be the case, though. Some, there's a temptation for us to be more worried about grades, more worried about the college that they attend, the type of job that they have, their career path. All of these things are good and important, but they are not greater. Let our prayers for our children reflect this truth. Let our emotions and our desires for them reflect that this truth that walking in the truth of God is the most important thing in this life. So John heard that Gaius was continually walking in faithfulness and this brought him a great joy and he expresses that joy as he is writing this letter to him. This brings us to a second point, John's commendation of Gaius in verse five to eight. John's commendation He's going to commend Gaius for his action. So what is it that he commends? What is he doing well? What is Gaius doing well in this letter that John commends him for? Well, first off, we see he commends him for his hospitality, for his biblical hospitality in verse five to verse six a. It says, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. Gaius is doing a, quote, faithful thing in his, quote, efforts or work for these believers. He is showing them hospitality. The context here is strangers came to Gaius's door. They came to his house 
and he received them. He showed them Christian love. He received them, why? Because they brought the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He received them because they were a part of the family of God. And did you notice that they were strangers? Strangers, right? We, that means he had never met them before. Right? He did not know these people and probably came knocking at the door he had never met them, but they were teaching and believing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in they came. He welcomed them into his home. What sort of efforts and works did he do? Well, I mean, just very practically, his efforts no doubt included making sure that they were fed, making sure that they had a place to sleep, probably doing laundry, meeting any other needs they had. These are just the nitty-gritty things of showing hospitality towards others. I would imagine somebody had to give up their bedroom to make room for this person to come in to sleep. They're making room for them. They're putting themselves out to show hospitality. And John commends Gaius for this hospitality, his showing kindness to strangers. Hospitality is so foundational in the Bible and foundational to being a Christian that Jesus uses the same word for stranger in Matthew chapter 25, speaking about who would enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen to what he says in Matthew 25, 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, same word here, and you welcomed me. What was their fruit, the fruit of this person? was their hospitality. Matthew 25, 40, truly, this is Jesus saying, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus says, as you did it to the least of my followers, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we have done it to Jesus. It's just quite an amazing thing to think about right there, what Jesus says. To receive another Christian is to receive Jesus. And when Paul is speaking to Timothy about what types of people are qualified to serve as elders in a church, one of God's qualifications is that the person be, quote, hospitable, right? To be able to serve as an elder in a local congregation. So a qualification to be an elder in the church is that they must be hospitable. I hope that we see how important, important hospitality is in the scripture. Showing kindness to brothers and sisters in Christ, even those who are strangers to you. Christians are to be people who invite others into their homes. It's trying to apply this specifically to us. We ought to be the type of people that we invite other people into our homes to be hospitable. That's a word that we need to hear today. In an age where our square footage of a house has grown, it seems that the fruit of hospitality has indeed shrunk. Brothers and sisters, let us be a church that opens our hearts and our homes to one another and to those that we don't know yet. This is one of the things that uh, John, as he is writing to Gaius, he commends him for his hospitality to these brothers that had come to him, strangers as they were. 
He also commends him for his support. Look at the second part of verse six. He says, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. You will do well is an idiom meaning please, okay? Please, you will do well. That's one of those kind of leading pleads, right? You will do well to send them on their way. He's saying support them, support these believers, receive them and send them on to the next mission as they're going to other churches. Receive them and send them. Look at verse seven. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Why is it that these believers had gone out from wherever it was they left they went out and they were going to other churches. Why? Well, they're going out, the text says, for the sake of the name. That shorthand for the gospel, right? The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to go. The gospel compels us to go. That's why we go as a church, that's why we send on mission trips, not just to go to different parts of the world. We go because of the name of Jesus Christ. And what is that? We go because the name of Jesus Christ is the light to send into the darkness. We go because Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation to God. We go because sinners need to be saved from their sin. We go because faith comes by hearing, hearing about the word of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us ever remember that that is why we are to go on mission. It is for the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because we as sinners can find forgiveness of our sin through the cross of Jesus Christ. As we come confessing that we are sinners, that we have broken God's law and that Jesus Christ has lived perfectly and died on the cross in our place. We must go with that message to tell others of what Jesus Christ has done. That compels us. Notice the text says here, it says, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, right? So as they're going, he says that uh, you, you will do well, or they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. The point is that those who take the gospel message should be supported by those who believe the gospel message. Let me put it this way. If the church doesn't send people to tell of Jesus Christ, then who will? If we don't do that, who will? Should we rely on the government to come up with a, some sort of board or committee that we put together to send out the... No. God is tasked and gifted the local church to be the place where missionaries and the gospel of Jesus Christ is to go forth into this world. It is our call to do this. Accepting nothing from the Gentiles. We are to foot the bill, so to speak. This is to speak, again, very practically here. This is why offerings for missionaries are so very important. This is why our support, our funds of giving money, that we give money to support other believers so that they can go to places around this world and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why our Lottie Moon Christmas offering is so important because it goes to support over 3,000 Southern Baptist missionaries all over this globe 
It goes to keep them there for the sake of the name. And if Christians don't support missionaries and ministers, then who will? It's our call to do just that, to support missionaries. Another, let me try to press this home. If everybody in the church acted as you acted with supporting missionaries, would we have missionaries? If everybody acted the same way, if they gave or didn't give how you give, would we have missionaries? The call is for each of us, each of us as believers, to give and support for the name of Jesus Christ. It's our task. Couldn't help but also notice here how John refers to the non-believers. Did you catch that one? How he referred to them? He said, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. The interesting thing is, he's writing to Gentiles, <laughs> right? So he says, don't accept anything from the Gentiles. He's, well, he's writing to people who are Gentiles. Gaius and these other names, they're Gentile names. These are places in Gentile provinces. Probably Jews there with them as well, but mainly Gentiles. This is because to be united to Jesus Christ is to be a Jew in the truest sense of the word. To be a child of God through Jesus Christ and through him only. Look in verse number eight. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers in the truth. When we support people who take the gospel message, quote, people like these, as John says, we are fellow workers for the truth. Quite simply, we have a part in their work by paying for them to do the work. Even though we're not there personally, we are supporting them and we're supporting the truth of the gospel because we're supporting the person that is telling others about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have a fellowship, a partnership with them in the work and how encouraging that is and to think about support like this not just to give somebody money so that somebody can have money to do this. No, to give money for the work of the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this area. To give support to the gospel, to the message, so that it may go forth. The next point and verses in this text come somewhat abruptly and really bluntly, I believe. Here we see John's condemnation of Diotrephus in verse 9 and 10. There's a contrast that we see here. We immediately see him commending Gaius and then he is going to go to condemning Diotrephes and later uh, he is going to commend Demetrius here in the text. So Gaius is commended for walking in the truth, for living faithfully to the truth, producing good biblical fruit. Diotrephes, not so much. In fact, this person is a picture of division, an example of how not to live, an example of how not to walk in the truth, an example, quite sadly, of what can happen in local churches when a power-hungry person places themselves in leadership. Diotrephes was no doubt a leader in this local church, if not officially, uh, then probably unofficially or self-positioned. Two main things that John condemns about him, a lot could be said, but two main things. First off, he rejects authority. 
says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. He rejects authority. This letter, I don't know what it's referring to, but John had written it. He had written it to him. I'm not sure which letter it was, but it was from the Apostle John, a leader in the church, right? Apostle, that should raise the awareness of the letter that's coming to you. And Diotrephes rejected it. He wouldn't acknowledge it. But notice how John describes him here in this verse. Did you see that in verse nine? Who likes to put himself first. This is literally a compound word meaning love and to be first. This person in the church, he loved to be first. It's the only time this word is used in the whole New Testament. We can define it like this, having a special interest in being in the leading position. And it's used in other literature in a negative light as it is here. It means to have a desire to control others a desire to have authority, to love to lead by controlling other people. Indeed, this man was full of pride. He loved to lord his leadership over other people in the church. The New Testament calls for there to be leaders in the church, but this type of leadership is clearly not biblical. Leaders of churches are not to lead out of personal ambition and pride, but out of zeal for the gospel of Jesus Christ. John, the apostle, was fully aware of this. Remember, it was his mother, right, in Matthew chapter 20 that asked for him and his brother to be at the right hand of the power in the kingdom. <laughs> his mother's request, it, it's always kind of embarrassing, right? Uh, hopefully my mom won't be listening to this, but right, it's always kind of an embarrassing when mom kind of gets out there in front for you, you know, to, to do things for you. And here his mom gets out in front of him and say, put my sons on places of position of authority in the kingdom of God with which is to come. Well, at least she was trusting in the kingdom of God to come. But his mother's request, as you remember, it shook up the disciples because they all wanted to be leaders and this brought Jesus to say this in Matthew 20. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentile lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant." And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Christian leadership is servant leadership. But Diotrephus wanted to put himself first. He wanted to show his control. He wanted to be the one who made the decisions, right? He was prideful. Not only that, he does not walk in the truth we see in verse number 10, in the greatest understatement of the book, I think, John says, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, right? I think John's sandbagging there. He's, he's, he's going to deal with him if he comes, but this letter is written obviously to Gaius, not to Diotrephus, or it would have been, I think, a whole lot stronger than that. John would deal with him, and notice what it is that this man is doing, again, Here's what he's doing, and we see so often as it does, the sin that comes about is the sin of the tongue of tearing other people down. He says, talking wicked nonsense against us. Right, this is standard operating procedure for prideful, sinful leaders. 
You slander godly people, you slander others, you lie, you twist the truth, you run their names through the mud so that you seem to be better than them. And that's exactly what we see him doing here. I tried not to think too long on that. What sort of wicked nonsense? Well, you probably think of it, and that's what he's saying of the Apostle John. He says, and not content with that, which, by the way, just for moving on to that, I think there's a word in there for those of us called to the ministry to know that we're ever going to have to guard against and just be prepared for this, right? Just to be prepared for others talking wickedly against you, even when you're trying to do the right thing. I think there's application there for all of us as Christians. It says, I'm not content with that, but he refuses to welcome the brothers, so the opposite of hospitality. When the brothers came, he rejected them and also stops those who want to. I mean, he's just ratcheting up in the church. He's saying, you, you want to accept them? No, you can't bring them into your house. Not only that, if they did, then he kicked them out of the church. You see what a, it's a lovely church to be a part of here, right? That you see taking place. Not only would he not do it, he's kicking out people of the church that would do it, that would support those and show biblical hospitality. He removed them, kicked them out. It's so sad to see when things like this take place in our churches. When someone is power hungry, when the issue is not necessarily doctrinal, but a power grab. Right? Not necessarily a doctor, it's one wanting to be in the position of authority. People who want to put themselves in authority because they desire to be first. They desire to be seen. Brothers and sisters, beware of such people. If there's temptation in your heart to be such a person, would you see what this does to the churches? Leadership in the church is good and biblical and right. Prideful leadership, power-hungry leadership is the opposite of biblical leadership. This leads us here to John's commendation of Demetrius, verse 11 and 12. He gives an exhortation here. He says, beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. John calls on Gaius here and all those who read this letter to not mimic the evil fruit, but to mimic the good fruit. The one who does good, he says, he is from God. He is from God. He comes from God. The one who does evil, instead of saying he's not from God, did you see what he said? He says, has not seen God. Because that is to see God is to fear God. God and to live in obedience to him, to be changed by it. And John commends Demetrius, another person that he pulls up in uh, this book. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. Demetrius is probably the person knocking on the door with this letter. He's probably the one that's carrying it, that is carrying 3 John 2 the church and to Gaius. And he receives, obviously, a full recommendation from John and the church and even from the truth. He's living in obedience to the truth. He's not like Diotrephus. And the call for us, brothers and sisters, is to imitate the good fruit of others. To see how other brothers and sisters in the church are living in obedience to the word of God and to follow suit. 
right? To see the good things that they're doing, to be encouraged by it, spurred onto it, and to mimic it, to do likewise, to follow after them. Likewise, when we see people acting incorrectly, don't follow after them. Don't be dragged into their disobedience. Don't follow, stand against it. The call there is for us to be observant, for us to be watchful, to realize that, yes, we're fallen, sinful people. Mimic and imitate the good that you see others doing. Follow after that, and when you see others doing wrong and bad, have no part in it. Lastly, we come to these, these, uh, John's farewell to Gaius in these last few verses. We see, again, a desire to visit him. Verse 13 and 14, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink, with reed and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Right, this matter, like Second John, was pressing. It needed to be addressed. It had to be addressed. Saying, watch out for this one. Don't mimic him. Don't follow after him. But I desire to come to you. I desire to come and to speak face to face with you. And we see unity in verse 15. What a beautiful verse. He says, peace to you. The friends greet you, greet the friends, every one of them, or by name, right? You know them, greet them, greet them by name. We see here the truth of the unity, once again, that the gospel brings to us, of the great friendship of being brothers and sisters united by the truth of Jesus Christ. In this short little letter, John commends certain actions and John condemns certain actions. I pray that each of us here this morning would just quite frankly see this example of how our actions affect local churches and congregations in this church. May each of us seek to be more like Gaius than Diotrephus. May we seek to be those who walk in the truth who believe the truth, who hold on to the truth, who rejoice when they see others walking in that same truth, to be those who live in obedience to the truth of the gospel, producing the fruit of the Spirit together as we trust in Christ. I pray that each of us would see the implications of our actions on the local church and on God's people. Look at the good that came from Gaius and Demetrius here the unity, the fellowship, the friendship it brought to those churches. Look at all the trouble brought about by Diotrephes in these churches and in this church. Look at that and let us be warned by that and not be those people who would seek to have this or to that in the congregation, but seek to live in obedience to Christ and to serve one another, to be united in the truth of the gospel for one another, to not try to build ourselves up by talking somebody else down. Say, well, did you see what this person did? And really what you're trying to do is make yourself look good when they look bad. And I say, well, I wouldn't do something like that. Right? May we be a people who are united and living in obedience. Just quite frankly, which type of church would you rather be a part of? Which congregation would you rather be? And I would just submit to you the way that we act with one another determines that. So let us continue to be faithful and loving to the truth. And may we seek to glorify God in how we live and treat others especially 
in our local church here at Redeeming Grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the short little letter that teaches us so much. Father, I pray that as your word has been read, I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would take that and bring conviction to us and that your word would encourage us into obedience. I thank you so much for this church. I thank you so much that we, Father, are characterized not by division, but by unity. Father, would you further us on, help us to grow deeper in that, never being content with where we are, but seeking to act more and more like you. Thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins that you've given to us. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen us as your church for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.